Welcome to the Breath Magazine podcast. Learn more about Breath Magazine and sign up for our newsletter to receive the latest news and updates at our website, breathmagazine.com. And now for today's episode. Good morning, everybody. My name is Peter Smythe. I'm the creator of Breath Magazine that you can find at breathmagazine.com. It's an original periodical. It's a... Breath Magazine is actually an original idea of a way of getting the word to people who ordinarily wouldn't sit down and read it. And it's also a builder of faith for those who are faithful, who are interested in something more than just, you know, some uh, short-rooted grass of the gospel. Uh, That's for people who really are intent in following the Lord and walking out their salvation. What we decided to do at Breath is we decided to start up these podcasts again because they are a good supplement to what we're doing in written materials. So with this particular podcast, what we're going to do is we're going to preach Jesus as we always do. He is always central. Uh, One thing that we've taken a look at just in organizing the magazine and trying to fulfill our vision and mission of what we're supposed to do is that we are always looking unto Jesus. He is the protagonist of the plan of redemption. He is the hero. So everything we do is going to revolve around him. Watching him and seeing what he does in the gospel to save mankind. We're not going to concentrate on things like, you know, these subjects like marriage and Um, other things that you see Christian preachers preach. We are preaching the Lord, and we're going to preach them hard and fast. Amen. So, like I said, this particular podcast, we're looking at the wedding at Cana, which is at John 2. So if you want to follow along in your Bible, you can turn over to John 2. Um, For those of you who don't have your Bible, don't worry. Uh, You're going to get the gist of everything that we're preaching just by listening. You know, in the first century, uh, most of the believers were not literate. They couldn't read, they couldn't write. Um, So what the apostles would do, and you see this in in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, someone would read the letters to the crowd there or to the church, and that's how they would get the word, and that's how they would go about their walk of faith. So sometimes it is better to read, I mean, to just listen instead of trying to follow in with notes because you can concentrate really on the bigger picture. And the wedding at Cana is one of those bigger picture things. Instead of getting down into, you know, each particular phrase or what every particular word means, I think the purpose of John is to show show a sign of the Lord in the 11 or so verses that we cover in this podcast today. So you might be there at John 2. Now, I'm not going to start at John 2. I'm going to start in John 1 because I need to give you some context before heading into this first sign of Jesus. Now, we're reading from John, and if you go up to chapter 1, he starts out his gospel by writing this. In the beginning was the Word, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, we're all familiar with that, but I want to dig in a little bit deeper. You notice that phrase, the Word was with God? Well, with really isn't a good word. It's not a good word in the English. It's not a good 
word in translation. Because when you go to the Greek, the word is pros, prostantheon, um, pros God. Pros is an interesting word because it has all kinds of variations of meaning. And what our English translations have done is that they have interpreted it, interpreted it as a place of location. In the beginning of the word, well, where was the word? Well, the word was with God, with the Father, in somewhat the same location. But that's not really what pros is talking about or what John's trying to get over to. Pros is more like um, face-to-face with God. Now, let me give you an analogy of what I'm talking about. You know, when you, uh, when, well, these days, when you do pay TV and uh, pay to watch one of these fights now, because they're all on pay TV, uh, you see the weigh-in first. And what happens with the weigh-in? Well, you got two boxers that come in for the weigh-in, you know, uh, their weight's taken and, you know, one's 166, the other guy's 168 or whatever. But then what these guys do is they stand toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose with each other, and you get to size them up. You look at the guy on the left and you think, well, he's a little bit shorter than the guy on the right. The guy on the right, he's got longer arms. The guy on the left is, uh, you know, bulkier, more muscular, that type of thing. You size them up. Well, that's kind of like pros in John 1.1. Because what John is really saying is, in the beginning it was the Word, and the Word was face-to-face, toe-to-toe with God. And the point is, he's saying, there's really no difference between the two. You know, and he follows that up with, and the Word was God. But the picture he's trying to paint is, the Word's independent of God, but... If they're standing toe-to-toe, their natures are the same. I mean, you look to the left, you look to the right, you look to the left, you look to the, um, to the right, and they size up the same. That's what John means by pros. He's trying to get over to us the nature of the Word. So it's not just that the Word was with God locationally. It is He is of the same substance, the same... Uh, the same character, the same type of being as God. And then what's he say? Then he says, and the word was God. Now, here is the wild thing about verse 1, and that's verse 14. When you go down to John 1.14, John says, and the word, this word who's toe-to-toe, face-to-face with God the Father, became flesh. I mean, that's really the revelation of the age, isn't it? That the Word became flesh. God came down and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Absolutely unique. Nobody like Him on the planet. The light came down. You know, in thinking about this verse and getting ready for it, I, you know, the thought occurred to me that some people really think that I'm kind of religious because I'm doing podcasts, doing the magazine, and all kinds of things like that, but I don't think I'm religious at all. It's just that I look at John 1.14, and I say to myself, I can't be casual about that. I can't read, and the Word became flesh, 
and just kind of like toss that off and go about my life. This changes everything. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was pros God, and the Word became flesh. Wow. I mean, that's just unbelievable. There's not a story like that anywhere. You know, and that's one reason why we have a gospel, because really man on his own couldn't even come up with a story as wild and weird as that is. You know, that God actually became a man, dwelt among us. How he became a man, man, that is a mystery, isn't it? But he did, and that's part of walking by faith. So Jesus wasn't just any man, he was the Word made flesh. Now, what I want to do, and this is all, this is all uh, context, I want to back up to John 1.11. John writes, And he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Now, as a kid growing up, spending summers at my grandmother's, I read that, you know, time and time again, because what? When you're a kid, you read John, because John's supposed to be easy. And I used to think that he came unto his own, which means that he came unto the world, but that's not what John's trying to get over to us. He came unto his own. John's, the context is that he came unto the Jews. Jesus was born a Jew. He had to be born a Jew for the plan of redemption. He couldn't be born a Texan, couldn't be born a Floridian, couldn't be born a Serbian. He had to be born a Jew, and his own received him not. His own people received him not, rejected him. Imagine that. The Jews were Jews because God called them out called them out for himself, and then they turn around and reject him. Now, that's the context that we, where we approach the wedding at Cana. And this context shows you uh, just this verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Now, think about how deep that is. The first part of the verse is talking about 2,000 years ago when Jesus was born, you know, born of Mary, born of the mother of Jesus, as John puts it, and lived his life here on the earth, his ministry in the earth before he was crucified. The second part of the verse, his own received him not. Well, his own, what, began all the way back in the days of Abraham. God's covenant with Abraham. So what I want to get over to you with this is um, the word coming and becoming flesh. You know, Jesus didn't just fall out of the sky one day the way that we usually hear him preached. You know, he's not looking over the... Uh, uh, he's not overlooking um, the banisters of heaven and saying, okay, now's the fullness of time. I'm going to helicopter in and be born of a virgin. God's plan of redemption had been going on for a long time. He had been working in the earth for a long time. Actually, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And the word reflects a grand rescue that began as early as the Garden, and it shows forth an epic mission 
which demonstrates God's righteousness and his goodness and the saving of his creation. Now, that's going to come, become evident to you as we go through the wedding at Cana, of all things. All right, now let's get down to John 2. Now, let me tell you this. In, um, you know, in the Greek New Testament, the, um, the apostles and the prophets, they didn't write in chapter and verse. Um, they didn't use punctuation. So what you read in your Bible about one paragraph to another, that is put in there by the translators to make reading easier. And I say that just to say, you can go to John 151 and John 2.1, and there is a big paragraph break between the two of them, but they're actually connected. Um, but we're going to start with John 2. And I say that to say, this Bible is deep. It's, it's amazing how many nuances you go from verse to verse to verse and how many things you skip over just because of the modern way of looking at things. So let's go to John 2.1 and we're going to look at this wedding at Cana and we're going to pull from it the intent that John wants us to get. You know, you have a, you have a man who's moved by the Holy Spirit to write a gospel and God somehow uses the man's personality, his vocabulary, the way he was brought up and everything to write a gospel in order to get things over to us by revelation. And the cool thing about the Lord is this, and it happens all throughout the Bible. God takes ordinary events and he infuses ordinary events with the revelation of his plan of redemption. You see it over and over and over again, and we're going to see it here at the wedding of Cana. So let's start reading. John 2, 1, John writes, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now you wouldn't think, oh, well, that's just a sentence. On the third day there's a wedding, yahoo, you know, in Cana of Galilee. Well, look what John is doing, how he's setting this whole thing up. First off, he says on the third day. On the third day. He doesn't say after three days. And... When you go back to John 151, there's no context about what the third day is. And what he's doing is he's signaling to us the third day. We all know now, after the resurrection, what the third day is all about. Well, this is John's signal. On the third day. And it's really funny when you take a look at that and say, well, third day of what? And he doesn't say the third day of what. He just says on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana. Now let's read on. Now he says there's a wedding. Now we don't think normally too much about a wedding, but if you stand back and you think about a wedding, you think, well, that is the marriage of a couple, you know, uh, husband and wife. But it's also the beginning of a family. You go back to the Garden of Eden. How did God start mankind? He started with Adam and Eve. He started with a couple. It's the beginning of a family. And then you go to Cana of Galilee. Now, what's so big about Cana of Galilee? Well, in the context of what John is writing, that is the Gentile world, Cana of Galilee. It's not Jerusalem. It's not where the Jews live. It's where the Gentiles live. Now, back in the day, you know, you've got God's covenant with Abraham and creates the Jews, God's 
chosen people. In the context of the Bible, there are Jews and there are non-Jews. You know, you've got Assyrians and Babylonians and um, all kinds of different tribes and everything else, but actually they all fall into the basket of Gentiles. They're non-Jews. So here we get, just from the very first sentence, we have, on the third day, signal, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee in Gentile land, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now we go on to John 2, 2. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, isn't that kind of cool? You have Jesus, who is a preacher out of Nazareth, you know, who's causing all kinds of commotion. We don't know how much commotion that he's made up to this point in time. John doesn't tell us. But he and his disciples are invited to this wedding. You know, imagine the wedding party sitting around and said, hey, who, who do we want to come to this wedding? I said, what about that prophet? What about that guy preaching from Nazareth, you know, causing all kinds of problems? And the Pharisees are all on his case. Yeah, let's invite him. Let's invite him. Well, here's one of the things, and, you know, you don't want to get kind of weird into reading things into, into Gospels that aren't there, you know. But you think about this. Jesus and his disciples are invited to the wedding. How many disciples did he have? He had 12. How many tribes of Israel were there? There were 12. When you go throughout the Gospels, you see that the disciples appear to constitute a reconstituted Israel. You know? And you're going to see that. You're going to see that a little bit here at the wedding at Cana. So just you keep that in mind that Jesus and his disciples were also invited to this wedding in what? In Gentile land. All right. Now, we go through the next few verses. When the wine, um, when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus says to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. All right. Now, this is the pivotal moment in this particular uh, account. You know, we're at a wedding and the hosts run out of wine. Well, wine's supposed to be, you know, that's not socially acceptable. But that's not what the focus of this is. This is not, you know, social acceptability is not why John is writing about this account in the Gospels. Even though some preach it that way, that's not what he's pointing to. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus, John calls Mary the mother of Jesus, I think, to try to center everything on Jesus instead of making him equal with other people or other people equal with him. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now listen to Jesus's response because, you know, he's on another level. He's operating on the Father's mission. He is so single-minded. And you can see that this response is kind of a response to Mary, but then it's not. It's on a whole nother level. Jesus, they have no wine. And he says, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. 
Now think about that a minute. My hour has not yet come. You know, you know he's not saying that, hey, you know, I'm going to become a winemaker uh, sometime in the short-term future, and that's when my hour's going to come and I can make some wine. You know he's not saying that. So what's he talking about? What concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. Well, you know that his hour is his crucifixion and resurrection. You know that. You know that from reading the rest of the gospel. But see, see, it's not really a disconnect. It's Mary's speaking on one level, and Jesus is responding on another level, on a redemptive level. She comes to him and says, hey, there's no wine. You know, she might even be pointing to some of the jars or whatever behind her. And she says, and he says, what concern is that to you and to me? See, she's going to be part of, what, the new covenant? My hour has not yet come. Now, this is where you have to stand back a little bit, and you have to know a little bit about Old Testament prophecy. A lot of times we don't hear about Old Testament prophecy. There are several uh, of the Old Testament prophets who prophesied about the flowing of wine in the Messianic age. Now, I could go through a number of verses, but I don't think I need to. I'm going to read to you uh, from Amos. Nobody reads from Amos today, so I thought, well, let me read from Amos. Amos is what's called or what's termed a, uh, a minor prophet. He's not really minor, but that's the way that we look at him today. He prophesied about the restoration of Israel. Now, when we talk about the restoration of Israel, a lot of times it's preached that the natural, um, the natural nation of Israel is going to be restored. But when you go through the Bible in the meta-narrative, you see that the Israel of God is actually all reconstituted around Jesus. Now, let me read from Amos so you can kind of get a context of what Jesus has in mind when he says, hey, wait a minute, my hour has not yet come. It's Amos 9, 13 and 14. Amos, Amos writes, The time is surely coming, says the Lord, when the one who plows shall overtake the one who reaps, and the treader of grapes the one who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them upon their land, and they shall never again be plucked up out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now, you see, Jesus is speaking to that. Here Mary says, hey, they have no wine. And he's like, why are you talking to me? My hour has not yet come. He's the purveyor of new wine, but it's going to come through the death, burial, and resurrection. That's what he's speaking to. Mary's not speaking to that, but Jesus takes the opportunity to speak to that, and that's why it's recorded by John in his gospel. Really cool, cool stuff. I've got down in my notes, the prophets 
prophesy that the abundance of good wine is symbolic of the new age, the fulfillment of eschatological hopes. I never can say that well while I'm podcasting. But anyway, so you see what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about, hey, I'm going to go out and and become a a wine purveyor. I'm not going to go out to Martha's Vineyard for a while. He's talking about his death, burial, and resurrection, where some new wine's going to flow. Hallelujah. Now let's read on. John 2.5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Now, you kind of wonder why she says that or why that's recorded, but you see, Jesus is the main protagonist. He is the main protagonist in the plan of redemption. All eyes are on him. You know, we are participants in God's plan of redemption, but the plan of redemption is all about the Father sending forth the Son. And so what Mary says to the servants You look unto him, you do whatever he says. He's the one who's going to produce new wine. Now, this is where it gets kind of cool, too. John 2, 6. John writes, Now, standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, servants, fill them up with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Now, there's a few things to recognize here what John's trying to point us to. First, he says, now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, there there are guys who, man, they go off the deep end with numbers and everything else. But notice that John, John points out that there were six stone jars. Six is usually the number for man, for mankind. Remember Revelation? Everybody knows about Revelation, about, hey, the number of the beast is the number of a man, and that number is 666. So you've got six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification of how the Jews would be purified. And apparently they're empty. They are barren. They are dry. This is symbolic of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant that actually couldn't purify men's, what? Men's spirits. And that's what John is alluding to here throughout this account of the wedding. Jesus says, fill them up with water. Now, that's that's a telltale sign too. Jesus didn't tell the servants, okay, break those jars. He didn't say, we're going to reuse some other jars Or he didn't bring in some kind of, you know, plastic cups or something like that to put in the water, to put the water in. No, he said, fill these up. And that's that's an allusion to what God is going to do with the Old Covenant is he's going to refigure it around the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not a replacement of the jars. It's a new use of the jars. It's a reconstitution of the jars. Fill them up with the water and then see what I'm going to do with, the, with what you filled them up with. In fact, let me stop here and let me read you something out of Romans so you get an idea of what I'm talking about. 
Uh, Romans 1, 28, 29. This is Paul writing to Roman Christians. Now listen to what he says to them. He says, For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. Real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It is spiritual and not literal. And that's what we're starting to see with these jars. You know, they were literally there for Jewish purification rites, but now they're going to be put to a new use. They're not replaced, but they're transfigured. So, they fill them up. And then Jesus says to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. And when the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, although the servants knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves good wine first, then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now what's that speaking to? That's speaking to the new covenant. You know, that is symbolic of the new covenant. That is an echo of the new covenant. The, um, the steward says, well, wait a minute. Usually the best wine is first to impress everybody, you know. And then when everybody gets drunk, just bring out the inferior stuff because they'll drink anything. But here it's reversed. And it's reversed because the plan of redemption is that way. The better covenant is the new covenant. The better covenant is the reconfigured covenant. The better covenant is the one that's introduced by Jesus' resurrection, that hour that has come. Notice this. In the old covenant, they had what? They had high priests that would go in on the Day of Atonement once a year to atone for people's sins. In the new covenant, we have an indestructible high priest who is forever our high priest, never to be replaced, never to be substituted again. But notice that he is still a high priest. It's a reconfigured covenant. Hallelujah. So John ends it this way. He says, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and the disciples believed him. The first of his signs. Signs of what? Signs of what the plan of redemption is going to look like and what it's going to turn into. In Cana of Galilee, the reason why John says that is because the gospel was coming to the Gentiles. Before Jesus, it was shut up unto the Jews, and they refused to share it. But now with the resurrection of Christ, what does Jesus say to Paul? He says, you are my chosen vessel to take my gospel to the Gentiles. And then John, John writes, and revealed his glory. You look into our number one issue of breath. We have an article that's entitled, Show Me Your Glory, where we go through uh, the raising of Lazarus, where we show that what John is, when he's talking about the glory of the Lord in his gospel He's talking about the word coming down and emptying himself all the way down through the cross 
to be resurrected again. He shows us his character. He shows us his righteousness. Hallelujah. Being made flesh and dying on a cross, humiliated by his own creation. That is the glory of the Lord, according to John. So that finishes um, the podcast for today. Um, We're not sure exactly how often we're going to do these, but they're going to be a good supplement for our magazine. So um, add us us to your subscription channels, uh, bookmark us, because we are... um, We're going to do these on a pretty regular basis. And we thank you for listening. Thank you for going to our site, breathmagazine.com. Let me conclude with a benediction. This is from 1 Thessalonians. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all just as we abound in love for you. And may he so strengthen your hearts in holiness that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen.